Welcome to episode 11 of the Sunday Conversation Podcast presented by Loyalty Liquors. I'm Aaron. Across the table from me, that's Benny. Benny, how was your first week in Wyoming, buddy? It was really good. Um, like, astonishing. It, like, there's no real words for it, I guess. It's just like, uh, it's like mesmerizing sort of everywhere you look is just beauty. So um, definitely, uh, definitely exciting. And uh, yeah, excited to be here. So obviously we touched on last week, you're out there uh, building a deck, but you also got a job this week, um, which is exciting. Um, but what else have you done? Have you done any exploring outside of stuff you'd already known since you've been there? Uh, yeah, quite a bit, actually. Just kind of checking out like all the different spots, uh, kind of like learning from from some locals and stuff, uh, like the, the mountain biking trails and you know, seeing what's, you know, muddy right now still, cause there's a lot of snow up high. So, right. um, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not summer here by any means. Um, gets pretty cold at night, like, you know, down in, you know, low thirties. So, yeah. um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, then like midday it warms up and it, it just, it's pretty neat. It kind of, it, it does remind me a lot of like new England weather. Um, yeah. so you know, it just has a majestic backdrop, I guess. What's, um, uh, what's the population like this time of year? Is it, is it like a transient population where more people come in during the winter to ski or is it like kind of busy all year round? It's, uh, it's actually, it's funny you say that it's reversed. The, oh, really? I guess, yeah, it's over 2 million people drive into to Jackson Hole in, in the yeah. summer because of the parks. Everyone's okay. going to Yellowstone. It's like the right. first, you know, it's the the last like town sort of before Yellowstone. So, um, it, but to backtrack what, or what you were saying, it's like, I am here at a completely odd time. Like every, everyone that I speak to is like, you know, it, it, it's obviously the whole, the situation, um, with what's going on. Um, yeah. there, there's, you know, it, it's very quiet, like, but you know at this point like the locals are are starting because there was i think the same thing going on here as like new york city so like there was like the stay inside rule for a little while um but now it seems uh like most of the locals are out and about um but i don't think that there's the traffic that there normally is and uh so that's what everyone keeps talking you know about like they're curious to know what happens this summer out here because right. you know it's every single store out here depends on the summer traffic yeah so um obviously rent is like through the roof sure um, and uh yeah which so is which is actually kind of interesting you would expect with the lower demand that the the uh pricing would go down but i guess it's people probably just need to recoup their money however they can get it what's um what's like the permanent population of uh of jackson uh you know i have no idea like yes. actually no idea so um great rate um it, it's kind of crazy here um because so if you go in town you can pretty much every single store in town and i guess this is how it is always but we'll, we'll always have help wanted signs right yeah. So the work is available, but the issue here is the housing. So right. you have like 
every chef in town lives in like this one little like trailer park and they like cram in however many people and it's right. just like um like one, one of my friends i was talking to um they 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 got a store right in the downtown and mm-hmm. uh, basically the woman who owns the store is able to house people to, to work there so right. essentially you know getting paid you know you know a, a livable wage sure then they're basically just like in like a bunkhouse in this woman's basement. So like that is like a very, like I would be considered like a lucky job because right. you know, you kind of got the both. Got a place to stay. Right. right. Exactly. But for the, you know, the average person that can't afford to like live here in town, right. some of them are driving like two and a half hours to like Idaho falls or Jesus. You know, like, yeah because it, they can just, they can make more money here, right? you know, but it's just so expensive to live. So um, that, that I think is very interesting uh, because, you know, it's like, it's a predominantly like extremely elite 1% culture here. Sure. So it's, it's like kind of ironic because everyone who owns in Jackson hole yeah. is barely ever even here. Now right. they're here for, Maybe, you know, a week in the summer, you know, they got like a, you know, $20 million home and it's just hanging out there. But then everyone who wants to be here, like can barely even make ends meet. Like, like, well, we saw that a little bit last summer when we were out in Nantucket because at uh, the Cisco guys, um, Cisco brewery had the same thing going where they had, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think it was one or two houses uh, for their employees. Yep back maybe um which is which is cool i mean martha's vineyard's kind of like that too you know it's very similar situation in the sense that you know the people who have houses there for the most part not exclusively are very wealthy um but don't you know don't spend the entire summer out on the island you know they maybe go a week or two and then you've just got all these houses that are basically empty for the majority of the year and you know, it's expensive to be there. So you get a lot of like uh, a lot of Europeans come in to work the summers. They work in the restaurants and stuff like that. So I can't imagine, you know, how they make ends meet, but uh, no, that's interesting. It's, it's like kind of like the dirty underbelly of like these like ultra rich places in the country. I mean, here in New Haven, it's actually kind of interesting because I actually wanted to bring this up a long time ago and I just kept stuff in my mind. 60% of the real estate in New Haven is tax free because Yale owns so much of the buildings and all of their, all of their endowments, their buildings is all tax free. So because of that, and not to compare New Haven to Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket or Jackson Hole, Wyoming, but um, it drives the prices up of the available real estate because there's a finite amount that is, you know, owned by, you know, regular people. Um, So it makes it, you know, I just, I just signed a lease on a new apartment. I move into in August it's fucking, you know, it's going to be almost 1200 bucks a month. Um, now thankfully I can afford it, but still like that, that's like the low end of like a decent, like a decent apartment in New Haven is, is like 11, 1200 bucks, which is crazy, you know? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, it really is wild. Like everywhere, like, you know, you're, we're just talking about a couple spots, but like, you know, if, if you really, I mean, look at every, 
vacation town you know it's like every yeah every town that thrives off a you know uh basically the business that transient of, population right, people coming you know the the business of 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 outsiders it's like uh right. you know some someone owns the stuff but that doesn't mean that they're you know part of it and doing it it's like someone's got to run the show and uh yeah you know it's like it's like the uh what are those shows like underneath vegas you know or like yeah. you know un- underneath new york city and it's yep. like just to see what it's like to to be the on, on the opposite side of the spectrum like it's crazy to think that you can look at you know one little section of land out here and know that you couldn't purchase it without you know 10 to 20 million dollars right, right and then there's someone that's tending the land that can't even like be there right it's like yeah. no it's um, i mean it's it's weird it's like as we get this like wealth gap that grows in the country between the the super rich and the rest of us um it's just what you see that comes of it is crazy in san diego in downtown San Diego and Sanford, I know San Francisco's like this as well. These major cities that have a real homeless uh, problem. Dude, there's entire, like, like it'll be like two city blocks worth of just like shanties, you know, tarps thrown up over fences and shit, uh, you know, makeshift shelters. And it's basically like these communes of, of homeless people because they just, they have nowhere else to go. Now, granted, there's there's definitely worse places in the country to be homeless than, you know, San Diego, where it's fucking sunny 300 days a year. Um, but still, I mean, it's only it's only going to get worse um, as this like generation or this uh, wealth gap increases, you know. Totally. Well, there's like a 70 mile stretch in Texas. I didn't see a single person, so they could for sure kind of <laughs> yeah, right. come up with something there if they, right. if they needed to. But uh no, it's funny. You, it's funny you said that because I was thinking about that. I went back and listened to last week's episode the other day, and and uh, we were talking about that. We we didn't get too too much into it, but you're totally right. I mean, I don't know if it's a matter of like because Texas, if I'm not mistaken, has more like you know privately owned. I don't know how to explain this. Like chunks of land than anywhere else in the country where that 70 miles like a good chunk of it might have been owned by somebody or some people oh it you could see the little like um it's pretty cool i noticed like every like ranch has like their own yeah. symbol oh and really I, yeah and it was like so you can see like on the posts and stuff like they mark their territory so like right. you know it's whatever ranch right uh, but it's just crazy to think that you know you see the the sign for the ranch, and then in thirty five miles, on the, see the ranch, <laughs> like the sign for the ranch, you know. What I yeah, mean? right. This this dude owns, you know, a large portion of the United States. Um, right. It's like no, no, it's crazy. I mean, these are all guys how, too. How who, many miles if you were to start on the edge of New Haven? Yeah. Drive to the other side of New Haven. Yeah. About about approximately how many miles would it would it you know be? Maybe uh from one end to the other, it'd probably be twenty five miles. Five. Oh. No, oh, I mean it depends. Go. It depends. Five miles. I mean it it depends what you count as like New Haven. If you talk about downtown, it's probably about five miles. If you talk about Morris Cove, which is right on the cusp of East Haven, I'd say it's about 10, 12 miles. Right. So there you have it. It's like yeah, this guy owns know, and, uh, and, 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 and cities worth of land. 
Yes. Yes. And, uh, but, and that's another thing, even talking about land, for example, like, uh, a lot of the places out here, like just say, you know, driving down the road and you see a cool mountain. Yeah. Well, the mountain may be no one's, but every bit of land to leading up to the mountain is owned privately. So like you can't even access that, you know, a lot of landlocked stuff here, you know, in the United States that like it, you know, it could be public land, you know, and that, but it's like the, the asterisk is like, okay, it's public land, but you can't get to it because you have to, you know, this, this rancher owns, you know, all the land around it and it's illegal to go on his property and he's a huge dick and he doesn't let anybody, you know what I mean? It's like, actually, you know, what's interesting. I think it's Montana. Montana, I believe has a law. I'm pretty sure it's Montana has a law where obviously Montana is similar in the sense that like people own big chunks of land there that doesn't necessarily have any development on it or anything. Um, but if you, uh, for as far as fishing goes, if you start your float on public land, right, let's say, I forget what the river is, but you start on the river in public land and you float into private land, you're still legally allowed to fish it, which I always found is interesting. So like the river is public as long as you start in a public area and then you can go as long as you want, no matter how much private land you're through, um, and fish it, which, which I always found like kind of interesting. Cause think about it. It'd be weird if you say you own 400 Lakers or Lakers, acres of of land in <laughs> Jesus Christ, Aaron, new tongue, huh? Um, 400 acres of land in Montana and you're out there, you know, tending to your land, whatever, checking it out. And you just see these guys go by in a float boat, just, you know, trout fishing. It's like, yeah, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like I own this land, but I guess that's a law. I guess there's like a big like point of contention because the people who want the land to remain public, you know, want it to stay that way. And the people who own the private land are like, I don't want people coming onto my property. Cause what if something happens? Am I technically liable? If somebody falls in the river and drowns, you know, it's on, it happened on my land, you know? Right. Yeah. No, that, that is a, it's an interesting, it, it's an interesting point that almost brings you back to like, it's amazing that we live in this society where just like humans, like we don't really like who gave like the land away, like who was the originator? So you're telling me if I had just rolled into, you know, the new world, mm-hmm. claimed this land, stuck a flag in the ground, you know, and then like, fought off everyone that tried to get it like is that how land enters a family you know yeah, what I, mean? Like, I mean how did it totally like who the hell like has jurisdiction to say you know it's like you know like whatever just make up some ultra rich person that has you know mega amounts of land that, that they've had since you know for generations yeah. and uh it's like well where'd you get it from you know what I mean? Who gave like it to originally, you? Right, right. You know what I mean? It's like, but now it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. But wait a second. Like it's, it, it's, it's the earth's. It's not like, you know, so I, it, to me, it makes me think like you could just go, I guess out with a, you know, whatever, a small army and just overtake land and say, this is mine now. Like, it doesn't make sense, really. It's weird. It's weird. I mean, there was a guy who used to, uh, when I used to work at the liquor store, it's a guy who used to come in um, 
every day and he would buy, he worked at Pratt and Whitney. He lived up, you know, up the street in Glastonbury. He'd buy a single Bud Light and he would, you know, drink on his way home. Him and I got to talking over the years. Drinking great guy. Driving, not, not a great play. But. We don't, Sunday Conversation con, a podcast does not condone drinking and driving, but this gentleman would drink and drive. Um, <laughs> whatever, it happens. Uh, so we got to talking and he found out I like fishing and he's like, yeah, man, like I got a pond on my property. If you want to come up and fish it, just let me know. So I used to go up, I'd bring him a six pack when I'd come up and he, you know, he'd let me fish. He'd come out and shoot the shit with me for a little bit. But, uh, you know, he would just leave me alone. So one time I'm up there and uh, he was out on his quad and he's like, hey, you want to like take a wheel around? I'm like, yeah, sure. And so we're going. He tells me at one point his family owned 400 acres of land up in East Glastonbury and he sold off like 150 acre parcel of it, you know, which is enough money for generations. And he still has 250 acres of land that he's, I guess it's been in his family since like the 1800s. His house was built in the 1860s. Um, so it's just like, it is, you're right. It's crazy that like, you know, families at one point were just like, this is our land or they paid pennies on the dollar for it. Right, right. And it's, then, you know, oh, no, no. we are. Oh no, we bought this 600 acres for $11. It was yeah, fair and right. square. <laughs> right. It's like the Louisiana purchase. Thomas Jefferson gave the French like two packs of Newports for like the biggest land purchase in, in history. Yeah, they were, they were, they were box 100s though. <laughs> um, but no, it is, it's like this weird thing. Now, obviously we have regulations and deeds and, you know, your property lines are all managed and stuff, but the great like westward expansion, that was the deal. It's like, you right, could, but you could settle the land, but you had to go out and settle it, you know, all, all written by who? All the deeds, you know what I mean? By the people yeah. who, oh, you know, th that have it to begin with. Oh yeah, yeah, we're the we're the most land rich, so we decide, you know, what the. Uh, I mean, that's like the, the age of the, the age of exploration is like is crazy like that, you know. People just fucking, you know, how about the English going to Australia? Like, ah, we're just gonna make this a prison. This whole gigantic fucking island, we're just gonna make it a prison. Like, you know, they just showed up there, decided that, and that's how Australia was born. You know, I, it's it is weird the way uh, the way it's all worked over the years. Oh, I might. It sure is. <laughs> um. So what? Uh, what's this new job you got? It's actually it's actually. Oh, cool oh no! Here. It's not. It's not really like a. It's not like a like job. a career. No, no. Just it's helping just out. A, yeah, yeah. It's just. Uh, um just literally chop like uh cutting up some trees and stuff it's not it's not like a uh it's not a job it's just uh more more work added on to what we were sure. originally doing like the deck a roof right. and uh so no i'm just uh i'm just up here living nothing like nothing obviously permanent but um more networking which is good i mean that's you know it, you never know where that's going to lead you in the future. Just connections you make now, you know? Oh, totally. And obviously, you know, it's weird times, you know, for everyone. So um, there's people like, Hey, we've talked about it before. Um, I, I don't know. Was it episode two? Just talking about the opportunity that would possibly yeah. come from yep. all this as sure. well. And uh, so like, like we talked about, it's like kind of seek, seek and, uh, and you shall find there, there you have it. Um, no, it's, it's uh, I just for my own sake to kind of 
track what's happening have been this kid that lives across the hall from me sent me a website that was like uh, tracking the daily coronavirus numbers by state by state or whatever. And um, I just happened to look the other day at Wyoming. So it's like, it's like a thousand people in Wyoming that have gotten it like period. So I think it's like a big, it's, it's a big population density. I don't want to go into coronavirus anymore. I'm so fucking sick of it at this point. But um, I just, I found it interesting that like people are scared to go Wyoming, even though Wyoming has had like some of the lowest number of cases in, in the country and deaths at that, you know, at that rate too. Um, it's, uh, it's a weird time to be alive. That's for sure. Yeah, I definitely, I've, I've, I've heard some uh, mumblings that, I guess some of the some of the locals here are a little chapped because uh you know they think there's like a bunch of people from out of state coming in, you know what I mean? Like you know, it's a like it's a place that you could potentially just go drive down the road and find a little offshoot of a road and go camp there. So it's like yeah. you know, if you have a setup like it's uh it, you know, it there's a lack of like I guess like, you know, there are rules, but it's just like, sure. you know, you can kind of go hide and uh, there's a, like, you wouldn't be found. So, right. you know, people are like, oh, these people from out of state, you know, they don't want anyone bringing the, you know, the virus up here or whatever. But I think that's a poor, poor way to look at it because, hey, your entire economy is, sh is shut down right now. Right. If anything, you guys could use every dollar from these well, especially if what you're, you know, obviously what you're saying about real estate is true. I mean, that means restaurants and shit, their, their um, leases, uh, their rent is probably through the roof. They probably pay an ungodly amount in, in rent every month. Or so they, they need to capitalize on the opportunities when they arise. Um, hey, it's going to be a ladder effect. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. the super wealthy people that own all the real estate that have been, you know, screwing the tenants for years with just outlandish like you're saying um rent prices well guess what they haven't sold a, a dinner in months and now right. they can't pay their rent and guess what that means you've probably leveraged so many other things based yep. off this as well yep you know it's just gonna hurt you too so um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, but, but, but therein lies another opportunity because that guy say he has to sell that property. Now some other super wealthy person who's not worried about, you know, filling the space right away, comes in, buys it, raises the rent even more. And then, you know, it's just a, a, an effect that just keeps on going and going and going. Um, so something else I wanted to talk about this week, cause I've been noticing, noticing them popping up left and right is, uh, is wine clubs. Um, so wine clubs are becoming like a pretty popular as the online business world grows, wine clubs are becoming more popular. Um, a lot of them claim to be able to pick wines for you based on your palate, other things you like, um, which I get it. I get the convenience factor of it, but I kind of want to fill people in on the way a lot of wine clubs operate because what you see is not necessarily what you get. So, um, Wait, in today's day and age? Is that, that's true? <laughs> Can you believe it? Um, but so let's say a winery in California has, um, has three different labelings, right? Let's say they have a $50 bottle, $20 bottle, $10 bottle. So odds are, depending on the winery, that they may have 
a lot of vineyard land that they don't use in their fruit or, or use that fruit for their wines. So they'll sell it. They'll sell it to other wineries. They'll sell it to wineries that don't have their own land. Uh, they'll sell it to other states, like say Connecticut, Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't do well in Connecticut. If you want to make a cab in Connecticut, you'll buy excess juice or you can buy grapes frozen and press them and, and ferment them yourself, uh, but from wineries in California. So what a wine club will do is they'll go to a winery and they'll say, okay, uh, you have 500 gallons in excess juice that you're not going to use, 500 gallons of Pinot Noir juice. We'll buy all of that. This is what we'll pay for it. And then we're going to bottle it under our own labeling and we'll sell it to the consumer. So when you think about what goes into pricing a bottle of wine, right? It's the land, it's the grapes, the cost of growing the grapes. If you use chemicals at all, the cost of the chemicals, the cost of the vineyard hands maintaining the land, the cost of your employees working in the winery, cost of the barrels, cost of the fermentation tanks, cost of shipping, cost of glass, cost of corks, cost of labeling, cost marketing, all this shit goes into the price of a bottle of wine, right? So if you're a wine club and you just buy bulk juice, that's either A, already fermented, or B, you have to ferment yourself. You've just cut off a significant portion of the cost. You're buying it at a set price. So let's say that price is uh, $0.25 cents a bottle. Well, then they're going to charge you $14.99 as the consumer, which is probably more than whatever the bottom labeling from that same winery's bottling is. And then you're going to pay more for it, but because you think you're getting convenience or delivered to your house and, you know, these people know me and know my palate, you know, I'm getting a great deal. When in reality, they're just going to tell you what your palate likes based on what they have available. They're not going to go out and say, oh, this person, uh, you know, seems like they might like Dolcetto, you know, which comes from Northwestern Italy. All right, we're going to go make a Dolcetto bottle. No, they're going to make a Cabernet, a Pinot Noir, a Merlot, a Sauvignon Blanc, a Pinot Grigio, a Rosé, and they're going to take whatever answers you give them on their little quizzes and fit it into one of those things or a couple of those things. And eventually they'll expand and add other grapes uh, and labelings. But at the end of the day, they don't actually care about your palate. They're just going to tell you that and you're going to, it's confirmation bias. You're going to say, oh, okay, that seems right. Um, and the reason I know this is because I did one of these quizzes. I kept getting this one, uh, this one wine club that kept popping up on Instagram for me. You had questions A, B, C, D, E, and you answered F, too bougie for this shit? Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I emailed the owner of the company and told him to stop advertising on my Instagram page. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I have been in the world of wine since I was a kid, so I'm, I know my palate. I know what I like. I know what I like to drink. Um, I tend to, you know, to just generalize it, Italian reds, French whites, um, but that's very, very generalized. I, I, there's plenty of other stuff I like to drink, but just for the sake of this discussion. So I answered all the questions accurately. Um, and I was told that I would like uh, California Cabernet, which, listen, that, that's people, like, love, people love California Cabernet. That's some rookie shit. I used to drink California Cabernet years ago. I have long made a joke Oh, and then you, um, then you grew up? I grew up. I graduated. Um, I long had a joke with one of my accounts where he'd, like, he'd ask me what I'd like to drink. And I always say ABC, anything but California, um, which isn't fair and isn't completely true. But um, so I know that this was bullshit. Now, 
there's a flip side because there's a handful of them that are like actually really good. Um, Brian McClintock, which is the guy um, I sent you the video of the, the hippie dude walking in the woods. He's got a wine club where he travels to uh, France, the Canary Islands, Spain, Italy, all, you know, all these places. And he does a wine club, but he doesn't personalize it. He doesn't say, Hey, you like Cabernet? Okay. Here's a Cabernet from California. He goes to places where he finds interesting wines and then he, your wine club offering is just whatever the bottling they've done most recently is. So I wonder if this kind of happens like similar, you know, cause like the, obviously, you know, working at a liquor store down in Texas, yep. it, um, the whiskey clubs, you know, sure. are, it's a, it's like a really big deal. So do you think it's similar in that, you know, for like a whiskey, when they do like a barrel pick, is that almost like, Hey, yeah, you're getting this select barrel, but it's really just like excess that they can mark up sort of, or. So I think it's, I think it's kind of twofold. I think it depends on the distillery, right? Like, so I think if you're going to a Buffalo Trace, uh, you know, uh, Four Roses, um, any of these like super well-established bourbon distilleries, I don't think there's as much like, I think they make good whiskey. You know, I think they just make good whiskey. So I think if you're, you're getting a barrel pick there, it's probably going to be pretty good whiskey because I don't think they're just trying to sell off the shit. You know, they've, they've all been doing it for so long. I think they do a pretty good job. But the flip side of that is MGP. Now, you guys used to do a lot of business with MGP, right? Yeah, that we're actually their biggest, uh, I guess, what would Account? the word be? No, no. Like we sold the most MGP product in all of Texas at our store. Yeah, so the biggest MGP account in Texas. Okay, so I mean, that's great. And here's the thing about MGP is, and for those listening, MGP stands for Midwest Grain Products. Um, it's a company in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Uh, basically, it's a it's the Costco of alcohol. So what they do is they distill their contract distillers. So let's say I want to make a bourbon. Okay, so under the restrictions of what you can label bourbon, you have to age it for at least two years in New American oak. So if you want to start a bourbon, do you have enough capital to just run for two years without selling anything? Because you won't have product. You have to wait for it to age the minimum. Odds are you probably want to let it age a little bit longer than that. So what you do is you go to a contract distiller like MGP and you say, okay, I'm starting a bourbon distillery. I have juice in the barrel, but it's going to take at least three years before it's ready. So this is the flavor profile I'm looking for. What do you have? And MGP who makes millions and millions and millions of gallons of, of whiskey, gin, vodka a year, um, takes you to their barrel room and you taste through a bunch of barrel samples that are, you know, the flavor profile you're going for. And you say, okay, it's perfect. I'll buy X amount of barrels of this. You label it. You have a product to sell, which covers you for the three years until your product is ready. Um, now the thing about MGP though is they also make their own products. They, they have products that they sell in the market, which is what Ben's talking about. Uh, Rossville Union being one. Um, they got a couple different ones. Re George, Remus. George Remus. Yeah, George Remus. Uh, Till Vodka. Um, and just for the record, I'm not bashing MGP because they actually make pretty good whiskey. Um, but it's significantly cheaper because they control it from start to finish. Um, but that's, you know, if you're a person starting a, a, a bourbon distillery, you know, you may just buy cheap juice and say, fuck it, we'll pump it out for a couple of years, you know? Yeah, and totally. And honestly, like what you're saying right here, I mean, it's definitely, it's eye-opening because like, 
there's this big craze going on and everyone thinks like, oh, this is what you, you know, this is the good stuff. This is what you want to drink, yada, yada, yada. So, I mean, I'm not a whiskey guy by any means. I'm not really, a, you know, a hard alcohol guy. Yeah. But um, I understand kind of like the whole craze behind it. And one thing that I find just absolutely baffling and, you know, we've sold many of them or, you know, when I was we're down at the store, it's like a $500 bottle of whistle pig. And uh, so I wasn't yep. really, I wasn't really familiar with whistle pig, but boss hog. It's a, yeah. It's a distillery up in Vermont mm-hmm. and they sell super high end um, whiskey. Rye whiskey. Yeah. Rye whiskey. Yeah. Like 499 bucks for the boss hog five or whatever. Yeah. Guess what? It's MGP juice. Yep. You know, that's, so if you want to talk about creating a brand, you know, it goes back to, you know, it's like you look at like, you know, Porsche or, you know, Ferrari, mm-hmm. it's like they've created this brand. doesn't mean their car is necessarily the best, but they're able to mark it up because of the, I guess, you know, the, the differentiation, allure. right. You know, you know, the, Whistle, Whistle Pig has an interesting story because it was started by two guys, one being the financial backer, I forget his name, his Indian guy, uh, and Dave Pickrell, who was a master distiller. And Dave Pickrell was the longtime master distiller for Maker's Mark. He went on to create Angel's Envy, which people know, and then he went to become the master distiller at, at uh, Whistle Pig. He passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, Hill Rock as well. Uh, this is other bourbon brand. Um, so they had this cachet right from the beginning. Um, because they had Dave Pickrell attached and, and it was going to be, you know, this self-sustaining farm in Vermont and all that. And I actually used to represent whistle pig. So I know their story a little bit. They, uh, Vermont has, I guess, pretty strict laws as far as like distilling goes. And since they call themselves a farm distillery, they have to go X amount of years following certain, they had to go X amount of years following certain guidelines, uh, by the state government to be able to make their own product. And I guess they had a setback towards the end of it. So they had to restart. So that kept them from being able to grow their own rye uh, and use it. But um, that's a great example. I mean, whistle pig's a great example. And for those of you that are into whiskey, you know, a little trick to kind of see where your whiskey's coming from. If you look on the back, on the back of a bottle of whiskey, you know, it'll, it'll tell you where it comes from. Right. So I just picked up a bottle of uh, Sagamore rye, which is, is made in Maryland. Right. And at some, somewhere on the back label, it'll say something to the effect of made in uh, you know, made in Maryland, bottled in Maryland, or if it's MGP juice, as this one is, it says aged in new charred Oak barrels distilled in Indiana, bottled by Sagamore Spirit, Baltimore, Maryland. So if it says distilled in Indiana, anything about Lawrenceburg, Indiana, that's juice that's coming from uh, MGP. If it says, if it says uh, produced and bottled by uh, Buffalo Trace Distilling, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, then it's made by Buffalo Trace and bottled there as well, obviously. Um, but that's just a little, I got taught that by a whiskey guy, a guy who owns a distillery up in upstate New York. Um, I didn't know. And it's, it's makes all the difference if you just know what you're looking for. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, it's another, it's just a whole different world. I mean, everyone, everyone has their, uh, their preferences in life and, uh, 
you know, it's all good, but it's just, it's interesting to see how, you know, essentially a poison has such a Dude, I mean, following the whiskey thing, you know, you're talking about guys getting into whiskey, like, cause whiskey has been, you know, one of the hottest categories in spirits for a while now. My thought on it has always been, it's kind of the collector's item for guys that don't get into wine in the sense like wine's complicated, right? Like buying a bottle of French wine, unless you know French labeling laws and French regions and French grapes, you don't know what you're buying because the French market their wines like shit. They don't tell you anything about it. You have to know their labeling laws, their regions, all that stuff to know what you're getting when you buy a bottle of French wine. With whiskey, A, a lot of these, these whiskeys that people are buying, these cult whiskeys are American. So there's already a comfort level there. Um, and it's, it's a collector's item, right? You know, they're, they're produced in limited batches. Um, you have to search for them. You have to know what you're looking for. Um, and it's, it becomes almost like a pissing match uh, where you tell your buddy, hey, I just got a bottle of uh, Pappy 10. Um, you know, what'd you get? And he's like, oh, I got Pappy 18 and uh, Pappy Van Winkle for those who don't know, which is the most overpriced uh, but probably sought after whiskey in the market. Um, but uh, so it creates this pissing match, which drives up pricing as people buy these bottles up. Um, actually kind of a funny story. My, my old bookie um, texted me one time cause he knew I was in the liquor industry and he's like, Hey, can you get your hands on any Pappy Van Winkle? And I was like, you know, maybe the problem with Pappy is, you know, accounts get a bottle or two and they don't necessarily want to sell it to one of their salespeople. And he's like, all right, well, if you can get one, let me know. I'll pay a premium for it. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm just going to resell it. And I'm like, listen, dude, I don't mean to be like offensive here, but I would just resell. If I bought a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, I would just resell it myself if I got it for a decent price. So we got to talking a little while later in the year when they were starting to release it. And he would, he like had people on his book in college towns and he'd pay these like fraternities to go stand in line outside of liquor stores to try and buy bottles of Pappy Van Winkle for him to resell. And he'd give the kids, you know, if you got a bottle, he'd give them 50 bucks and these are college kids who need the money. So they'd go do it for him. You know, he'd pay for the bottle and then give them 50 bucks for their time. And then he'd turn around and flip the stuff for double, triple what he was paying for. His guy, the guy was a hustler, man. That was a hustler. Yeah. It's like, I still owe him 300 bucks, but yeah, fuck it. Um, but like, yeah, it, I mean, it's like anything though, you know, it's like, you know, the hype, the hype, the streetwear game, you know, yep. it's like all the, like there, there's a market for, for, for anything really. It's just, yep. uh, it just, so, it was so crazy, man. It, it almost got like borderline annoying. Like when I was working at the store and it's like, you know, you open up at 10 o'clock and it's like three guys come in by 10, 15 and they they just walk in the door and they're like, "Got anything good? Got anything all, allocated?" Yep. It's like, first of all, fuckhead. Like, <laughs> I'm not giving you jack shit because buy something else. Like, spend right. some time in here. Like, you're not a loyal customer. You know, yeah, no, we're loyalty liquors, baby. <laughs> like, uh, of course I got some good stuff under the counter, and uh, you know, if you didn't just walk in and say that, I'd be more, you know. Yeah. I would, I would call, you know, Trevor or Aaron and be like, yo, Hey guy came in, um, seems pretty cool. Like, uh, yep. 
is getting X, Y, and Z was wondering if we had anything else. Can I sell them this bottle of Eagle rare or something? And yeah. nine times out of 10, they're like, yeah, go for it. You yeah. know what I mean? But it's like, I wouldn't even waste my time if someone just came in and was like, Hey, what, what do you guys have that's allocated? Right. You know what I mean? And it's just like, I mean, um, dude, it's just, it's the same thing on the wholesale side. Um, you know, we represent, we represent four roses. We represent high West. Uh, we represent Nika, uh, which is a Japanese distillery that, that makes some great whiskeys. Um, but like High West, for example, right? So in October, November every year, they release Midwinter's Night's Dram, which is their most sought after. Oh, yeah, allocated we, we, had, we had uh, 12 bottles yeah. of that, actually. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, so the state of Connecticut gets like 70 cases. And it's inevitably every year, every Tom, Dick, and Harry I call on, Hey man, can I get a bottle of Dram? And it's like, dude, you haven't bought a bottle of High West in three years. Why the fuck would we sell you a bottle of Dram? And then they get pissed off about it. See, that's like the difference, I guess, is your customer may just leave. For me, my customer then bitches at me. You know, why can't I get it? Look at how much business I do. Then they try to go up the ladder, like call, you know, whatever. 100%. And so I always do the same thing you just did. And I say, okay, so say somebody comes into your store and they want to buy a bottle of Dram. You've never seen this guy before. You don't know anything about him. You are pretty sure you'll never see him again. Would you sell him a bottle of Dram? And they say no. And I go, okay, well, you just answered your own question, bro. Buy some other SKUs of High West and I'll get you some Dram. It's as simple as that. We don't, we don't make it complicated. Um, but if you're not going to support the brand, you shouldn't, shouldn't be able to get, you shouldn't be able to cherry pick the portfolio, you know? Right, right. Um, um, no, it, it, it's like anything, man. It's like, you know, it's everyone wants, you know, everyone wants, 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 but then doesn't want to like, I don't want to you know, do the work. Like, right. It's like, Oh, why does, why does, uh, you know, all these stores get all the, the good allocated stuff. Right. Unfortunately, it's because those stores bought 10,000 cases yeah, right. over the course of the year. And it's like, right. you got to give it to them. Um, and here we are talking to, once again about like, you know, rich getting richer type of thing. Yep. It's like, you know, you spend more and you get more and uh yeah it's uh it's a wild world we live in man it's the way uh, it goes it's the way it goes i mean i i've i've gotten out of the allocated liquor game with with one exception i buy two bottles of bartolo mascarello barolo every year from the wine thief shop down the street um which is hey, by, allocated. By, by the way when you told when you told us that um about the Barolo, yeah, whatever, yeah, and then and yeah. then we called the guy. He said yeah. he was like, uh, "Yeah, sorry, go fuck yourself." Like same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, like, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because that's a weird one. So that's represented by Rare Wine Company, and Rare Wine Company is super weird with how they do their allocations. But Connecticut gets like four cases every year, and it gets doled out to the accounts that support Rare Wine Company the most. So these guys down the street, they get two bottles every year, but it's expensive. I mean, it costs them a hundred and ten bucks. You know, I think they, last year they sold it to me for, I want to say 180 bucks a piece. Um, but they, they buy it cause they know I'll buy it. They know I'll buy it every year, hands down, no questions asked. So, you know, their money's protected and they give me a little bit of a break compared to what they charge somebody else. But, you know, I tell them to charge me full price cause I want them to make their money. You know, they're doing me a favor. It's, it's only right. I do them a favor, but I just don't have the stomach for it anymore. The pricing is just, it's fucking absurd. It's crazy the way it's gone, but um, I mean, dude, we've been, we've been cooking for a decent amount of time here. I guess that's, that's probably a good place to stop and we'll, uh, pick it back up next week. Um, good talk, buddy. Love you.
Love you too, dude. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, we'll just keep on uh, keeping on and a uh, different, little bit different shit happening here in uh, in life in general. So I guess great. just be aware and be safe and uh, shit, get outside. My man.